Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to our Practice Manager update recorded as an audio podcast on Wednesday the 3rd of March. So um, Michelle and I are here today and Helena Irvin, our uh, nurse advisor, and we are ably um, accompanied, supported and propped up by Dawn, our assistant, who puts us right when we get it wrong. So at least me anyway. So we're going to start with um, a, a little bit around flu and then COVID, which Michelle is going to uh, update you on. Thanks, Michelle. So flu, this is relating to next season's flu, so 21-22. So back in November, um, the JCVI released their um, information around what vaccinations were going to be um, used for the next flu season. And we were patiently awaiting the information on reimbursements from public health. I know practices were getting um, pressured to from suppliers to purchase these, and this has now been released. Um, what it does state in that letter is that for over 65s, only a QIVC will be reimbursed. And for under 65s, it's QIVC. The, there is the usual um, vaccine. So if these are not available and the, the stocks have been completely used, that there are alternatives that can be used for these. I think it was really just a highlight <clears throat> for um, practices that the supplier of both of these vaccines is actually Sequaris. And I know that we had um, some... Uh, We've had some feedback, not necessarily from our area, but from across the country relating to practices who have ordered from different suppliers. I think for our area, um, our local uh, public health teams were really clear that practices should wait until the reimbursable letter uh, was released. So hopefully this won't affect practices within our area, but wanted just to make people aware of it. I think um, actually, Michelle, you've just missed a little bit of the sentence there. So across the country, what's happened is when practices did order because they were worried they wouldn't get their supplies, they're only being allowed to return 20 percent um, and they're going to have to pay for the other 80 percent, which is not the Sequiris one. So that's the issue. It has been taken up with the GPC. So actually, if it does apply to you or anybody in our area, if you're having those problems, do let us know because it will all add to the weight for the GPC um, to make their representations. Sorry, Michelle. That's okay. Um, I think I'm also going on to talk a bit about the shielding letter that's recently gone out and identified the additional patients. And um, we've received uh, a number of queries, as you probably understand, from practices, um, focusing on two themes. The first theme is around staff who are now potentially required to shield, and the other is about the level of contacts from patients who are um, clearly anxious about this letter. So just talking about the staff issue. Um, so there isn't a requirement for staff to shield or patients to shield. It's not a must do, it's a should do. Um, however, what we would always suggest is the staff that are potentially affected by this, that there needs to be a discussion between the practice and the employee and agree a way forward as to how you want to implement this. Um, if, if members of staff would don't want to shield, um, we would suggest that, as, you, as I've said, to discuss it with them. And um, as an employee of a duty of care to these members of staff, we may need to make um, amendments and adjustments for them to return to work safely or to continue to work safely. We've also had questions from 
practices where the members of staff are shielding and they've had their vaccinations. Um, we just wanted to highlight that actually vaccination status doesn't change anything. So if they have been shielding, they really should continue to do so uh, until any further guidance is um, issued. The other issue that we're aware of is the letter clearly has gone to patients that may not necessarily be um, needing to shield. And this has caused quite a deal of um, quite a big deal of anxious patients. I think the biggest one that's been um, an issue is gestational diabetes. Um, and we've had a few queries around that. NHS Digital have um, released some a useful uh, website, which I think we're going to do some FAQs with this podcast and we'll be on our website with it. And we'll put the link in there um, into that so that you can go and have a look um, also there's an email address that um, public members of the public or patients can use which if they've got any particular questions around the population risk assessment tool they can raise it there and that's it are you not going to talk about the oh, yeah, I've got of course i am <laughs> it's all the good news i'm giving you to do today thanks um, <laughs> So this is around the, um, uh, as you say, the SOP and particularly the uh, disposing of the vaccine out of packaging. So we did have a query from a practice. We were um, we raised it with GPC just to make sure um, the SOP was correct. And what it's saying is that you need to dispose of the out of dispose of the vaccine out of packaging in confidential waste. And actually, this is correct. Um, I think there's a concern that these packages could be used fraudulently or to aid the production and selling of counterfeit vaccines. So it was just to highlight to PCN groupings and practices that they do need to dispose of it in confidential waste. And I think that is now me done. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think, you know, that definitely came up, the, the, the packaging thing. I think most of us had missed it in the, in the um, SOP. Um, and it came up, would you believe, from a shredding company. Can't think why, can you? Um, I think they are actually the buying group's preferred provider of shredding. But uh, anyway, it's up to individual PCNs and practices to decide for themselves. But just be aware that, that it does need to be done confidentially. confidentially. OK, um, I just want um, just to point out something. We've got it on our website already. And again, as Michelle said, we'll do some FAQs following um, to, to accompany this podcast so that you can look at the links and things. But there is a really helpful poster that Public Health England have actually uh, supplied and it gives you, um, on one side, it gives you the Pfizer vaccine and on the other, the AZ vaccine. And it gives you all the little nuances that, that apply to each about whether you have to sit and wait about um, various other things. So it's, it's a really good poster. So I would suggest your nurses, I think we've run it by some nurses, and they think it's really, really helpful. So it might be helpful for yours. Um, next thing I wanted to talk about, and this is happening um, a bit as well of late is is around complaints um as you know uh, there are fairly strict instructions and timelines around responding to complaints that has actually been relaxed um it was in lockdown one two and it is now uh, already again it's it's relaxed basically what you have to do if you get a complaint you can go back to the patient and give them 
a possible or, or a suggested timeline of when you'll be able to respond to that complaint. You can explain, obviously, you're busy with the vaccine programme, um, that you haven't got as many staff uh, or there are capacity issues in the practice, whatever, and just say, we will expect to respond to you within and give them a timeline. Um, it obviously has to be reasonable and that will depend on the uh severity in a way of the actual complaint but you can give them you know you can give yourselves a bit of a a, a timeline a bit of a break um but you will have to do it in the end so just just be wary about that we'll put again the link to that so you can look at it in more detail on on the website the other thing about complaints I've got all the happy stuff today. Um, the other thing about complaints is, as you know, every year there's a KO41B return to be done, which is how many complaints have you had, what the outcomes, da-da-da-da, all that. Um, there is, at the moment, NHS Digital is actually doing a survey, a consultation on on this particular return. So we would suggest you all complete it and tell them what a waste of time it is um, and everything else. I mean, you report to your CCGs um, and everything else why you have to do it through NHS Digital. I don't know either, but it does close on the 26th of March. So you've got a little bit of time yet. But and again, we'll put the link under this podcast on the FAQs so you've got access to it. I'm going to hand back to Michelle now, who's going to talk to you a little bit about the ARRS. So a um, couple of things. So if I do, uh, let's talk about the PCN portal for claims. So um, currently PCNs are submitting any ARRS claims through a manual claim form. Um, that's been in place since obviously ARRS came about. And um, they've also introduced an online portal, which has been in place since December. And PCNs had an option as to which one they chose to do, was it the whether it was a manual claim or whether it was the online portal. However, just to make PCNs aware, that actually from the 30th of March this year, it has to be done via the online um, portal. It can't be done via the manual claim. So just to highlight highlight that for you, I think just to following on from that, that we are aware that there are most PCNs in our area are having issues with some of their PCN payments, um, particularly the extended hours, the clinical director payments and the, the partic participation payment. Um, interestingly, they're not consistent, but there are just issues right across the patch. We have raised these with NHS England and also the BMA, and we continue to try and um, help get this resolved for PCNs. But we are aware of this issue and we are raising it and escalating it. So I think I'm also going to talk a bit about um, the uh, social prescriber link worker and just to highlight that back in August, there was a letter released which talked about an additional pot of money or some funding to support the recruitment of these workers, given how their significant role they've been playing within the pandemic. And it's just to highlight that the there was a deadline of January, I think, uh, that, that you could apply for this, but it's actually been extended to the 26th of March. So if you would like to apply for this, funding this will give you support around recruitment um, induction um, and there are a couple of options as to how you could potentially access that money one option was if you wanted an external organization to appoint for you or whether you wanted to do it yourself but with the support of the south central and west csu 
but it's worth just being aware I, for the first option i think there was three thousand pound per link worker that you could access and any subsequent um link worker after that was two and two thousand six hundred so it's worth just being aware of and that it's been extended to the 26th of march thanks michelle um, next subject we're going to go on to is uh, one we, we visit probably at least annually, if not more, is the Residential Institute Code on your patient records. As most of you will know, the RRI code actually um, which calculates your global sum. That's not the important bit. Well, it is. Um, but, but what we're finding recently is that practices are starting to look and realizing that uh, especially doing the enhanced um, health and care home part of the DES that not all of their care homes are actually um, attracting or the patients in those care homes are not attracting the the additional funding. Um, so there are two things really. The first thing is in order to get somebody with a uh, residential institute code on their record, that care home has got to be, or nursing home or whatever type of home it has, has to be registered with PCSE. So if you're not sure, the first thing to do is to check the PCSE. Um, there is guidance on their website, and again, we'll give you the link to make sure that that is one of the homes that's registered. The way it all works is when a new care home opens, the local authority notifies PCSE. PCSE add it to their list of care homes and that then feeds Open Exeter and um, NHAIS. So it all has to be done in that order. So you just put in a flag. Yes, that'll hit Open Exeter, but nothing will happen in terms of your global sum because if it's not registered, it, it just won't be picked up. So, um, and... I think a few of you will remember a few years ago, we went to the painstaking uh, trouble of getting all the care home uh, codes for you and putting it on the website and then saying to you, have a look, if one of your care homes isn't on there, let's get something done about it. We now do have a generic care home residential institute code, which is just VO, that's zero, V0. Um, so, you can do it just with that. If it's already got the actual individual care home code on, that should still be being picked up, but it might just be worth checking. So um, uh, again, I'm, I'm sorry to add to your workload and everything, but, but this is all funding and it's quite important that, that you know, you're aware of it. And moving on to an even happier thing is, um, you know, the, the sorry, worth adding about the spreadsheet i think we've got a did you mention this that you've got there's a list of um uh ca current care homes that pcse have identified by postcode and i think we're going to yeah. add to our website so if you yeah, that that's sorry that's the link i mentioned but i didn't say that so thank you yeah oh. no absolutely thanks michelle um so i'm going to talk now about um I'm not allowed to say these words because anybody can hear this, so I won't say dreaded. I'll just say the wonderful CQC. And so CQC have uh, were commissioned by the Department of Health to look at uh, DNA CPR notices. Um, and it was prompted because there were concerns that there'd been some sort of blanket application of a DNA CPR decision, particularly during um, lockdown and the first lot of COVID um, 
responses. So they are, they've looked at all care sectors. So they've looked not just at primary care, but at secondary care and, and community and everything else. And they have come out with an interim report. They have actually highlighted that it is possible in some cases that inappropriate DNA CPRs remain in place. And the CQC is expecting all care providers to make sure that those are appropriate, that they continue to be appropriate, they're in line with legal requirements and best practice, and that you know discussions about DNA CPR happen as part of person-centered care planning. So I think it's you know worth just having a think about that when you get time to do it, obviously. But when CQC come along to start doing that. I know they're saying they're not doing the same type of inspections, but the way they are inspecting at the moment is they are accessing records remotely. They are asking for access. Only where they think there are issues, only where there's been something, maybe a safety issue that's been reported to them, things like that, but they are entitled to access records remotely. So you need to be aware to look at that. Um, the other thing I just wanted to remind you about with CQC is that the ethnicity codes, as you know, we've been collecting them for many years, but we've never really focused on them. That is now a, a requirement, has been a requirement since 1st of January um, 2021, that you ask and record ethnicity um, where obviously somebody's prepared to tell you. Uh, CQC are looking at that as well. So it's worth just making sure that you're doing that, that your receptionist know to do it and everybody else in the practice adds to, to, to help him with that. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to pass over now to Helene Irvin, who is going to talk to you um, on some nursing and some COVID stuff. Thanks, Helene. Thank you, Carol. Um, hello, everyone. Just quickly following up from Michelle's update reflu. Um, a lot of young nurses probably take the Independent Nurse Magazine and Sequeris are actually offering some free webinars for nurses um, with um, CPD attached for uh, flu. So just as, as, a, as a mention, really, that might be worth them having a look at. I think they are going to run some other webinars, so just keep an eye on it. Um, as you probably know, there's been a national push for something called the COVID Oximetry at Home and also the COVID Virtual Ward. Um, certainly the COVID exhibitory at home is now being offered by all CCGs throughout um, England and it's actually been taken up by the uh, WHO. There is a difference between the two. So the COVID exhibitory at home is very much about those patients who were not unwell enough to go into a hospital but could stay at home safely and um, who are going to self-monitor their um, vital signs, particularly the oxygen saturation at home. They're given very clear guidelines on what to do should there be any desaturation or drop in the row two levels and who to contact. And they remain on the programme for a minimum of 14 days. So that's self-monitoring um, and they are contacted um, at various intervals by uh, healthcare professionals, but it's very much about the patient's self-monitoring. The COVID virtual ward is where the patient who has been an inpatient with a positive COVID test has... Um, is well enough to be discharged home, but still needs careful monitoring by secondary care. And some of these patients will be going home on things like dexamethasone or um, heparin, or even may have um, oxygen as well. These will be monitored by 14 days and be followed up directly 
by the secondary care professionals. They will be asked to keep a dietary and monitor their oxygen levels a minimum of three times a day. So there is a difference between the two. And that's been rolled out nationally as well. There is quite a lot of information on our website around the COVID oximetry at home and the virtual ward. And it's also now on the um, NHS platform, digital platform. The other thing I just quickly wanted to mention was about um, the NMC. They just reduced, produced a few weeks ago, actually, a guidance for employers on when to refer to the NMC. Um, referring anyone to the NMC can be really stressful and it's quite a long process for both the employer and the nurse. Um, and it's thought that many cases referred could actually be resolved by the employer. Uh, in fact, in 2019-20, the NMC received about just under 2,000 referrals. 62% um, uh, progressed to the investigation stage and only 7% went to a hearing. So they produce a resource for employees to support you to respond to concerns about a nurse or a nursing associate. Um, and the aim really of the documents ensure that um, appropriate referrals are made to the NMC following active management at a local level and hopefully this will facilitate a more rapid response to any fitness to practice concerns. The guidance is divided into six sections. It's really quite easy to, to read and it's far more helpful than probably anything that's come out in the past. And again, information that's on our website. Um, the, other, the other thing we want to draw your attention to, and we've had quite a lot of interest actually from practices and nurses concerned, is about the nurse associate role. The nurse associate role um, was first mentioned in 2015 um, and has come to the forefront because it's part of the ARS roles. The role has been developed to expand the capacity of the nursing workforce um, and to support and enable healthcare professionals to focus on the delivery of um, much more management of complex clinical care. It's not a substitute for a registered nurse. In October 2020, as part of the ARS scheme under the PCNDES, um, you can claim reimbursement for two nursing roles, a trainee nursing associate, which is a band three on the AFC band, um, uh, agenda for change uh, banding, and also a qualified nursing associate, which normally starts at band four. Uh, the nursing associate, they're registered at the NMC and have been able to join since 2019, and they have a PIN number that actually is in England only. They're educated to a foundation degree level, and they have to, like all registered nurses, revalidate every three years. However, they have to work under supervision of a registered healthcare professional on um, a specific list. Um, uh, we've created a document because of the queries we've had, which again will be available on our website, which goes through some of the processes of why employ a nursing associate um, and also uh, an outline job description. What we've also done is we've lifted some of the recommendations from the NSC proficiency document to make them very much applicable to how the role could be utilised in the general practice setting. Um, at the time of writing the document, it's understood the nursing associates cannot administer childhood vaccinations or travel vaccinations. And they can't refer for radiology, including further investigations or prescribe. And they can't work under a PGD, but I understand that is actually um, currently being reviewed. They can, um, obviously, with further training, undertake things like cervical smears and the management of long-term conditions. And as part of our document, what we've done is we've outlined some of the standards of proficiency and the capabilities. And on the second um, table, part of the table, we've put some links of where you can actually um, signpost the nursing associate for uh, further training, postgraduate training. Um, it's really important when you read through the capabilities, it's not read in isolation. Um, we would recommend as employers you read the NMC document in full to put it in context. 
Um, and the list that we've provided obviously is not exhausted. Uh, there has to be evidence of training and competen competencies and ongoing updates and clinical supervision is obviously really, really important with accountability and delegation. There are going to be local variations in how practices will uh, use the role um, and we will update that uh, if any national documents come out. Finally, uh, just to draw your attention to the fact that please check your PGDs in relation to men B and men ACWY for the at-risk groups. The current PGDs expire at the end, expired at the end of February 2021. There are new ones available on the NHS England website and they run from March the 1st of February 2023, though I understand they will be updated um, I think it's September 2022. And Dawn, very kindly, because she's the font of all knowledge, has already updated this on our website. If you have any queries into anything I've sort of mentioned this morning or this afternoon, please um, email me and um, I'll provide additional information. Thank you. Um, okay, thank you, Helene. Uh, so uh, just winding down now to the final few bits, um, we just wanted to let you know that the... Uh, polypharmacy tool has been updated. This is the prescribing comparator. Um, it helps uh, PCNs and cells and CCGs identify patients who um, take multiple medications and may well be at risk, particularly helpful with the structured medication reviews. So again, we'll put that link with this um, podcast so that you've, you've got access to it and you can pass it on to whoever you need to in your practice. Um, the final bits and pieces we just wanted to really just raise was uh, we have finally uh, <laughs> done a sort of uh, protected income spreadsheet because people have been asking about it. But unfortunately, every time we thought we'd finished it, things changed and moved on and uh, something else got added or taken off. So we are going to add it to the end of this podcast. But please be aware that is a moving feast, but at least if you're not sure if there's something that has to be done or doesn't have to be done, have a look at the spreadsheet and hopefully it will tell you. Um, where we know for 21-22, we've also added that. One of the things a lot of people are asking us is, you know, and, and certainly in the GPC roadshows, they talked about business as usual, returning to having to do quaff, etc. We're still, and you're still particularly in the middle of um, a pandemic and a mass vaccination programme. We will be very surprised if Quaff comes back completely from April. That, that would be a nonsense. And I think you would all slit your wrists. So it is under review. Uh, GPC are working with NHS England Department of Health to see what the art of the possible is, what's feasible, and we will, as far as we possibly can, protect you from having to do more than is absolutely necessary. So please don't worry, we, we, we're on to it. Um, and then the final thing is that the people have been asking about GP online payments. Um, <laughs> we're told it's imminent, uh, hopefully a lot more imminent than the premises cost directions. We think there will be announcement made with a date reasonably soon, but we can't say exactly when. So that's where we are. Okay, um, I hope you will find this useful wherever you're listening to it. I, I do hope we're in the bath with a few of you or possibly having a nice drive down a country lane as part of your exercise or whatever you do while you're listening. Um, I hope it's been helpful and we will see you again um, I was going to say in the flesh, but that doesn't sound quite right, does it? We'll see you again in a couple of 
week's time. Take care. Bye-bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.